This is episode number 542 with Nilifer Merchant. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Being the best is great. You're the number one. But being unique is greater because you're the only one. That's a great anonymous quote that I wanted to kick off this episode with because it's all about stepping into your power, using your uniqueness to make an impact in your community and in your industry and your family and the world. We've got Nilifer Merchant on who is an author and top-ranked TED speaker. She has personally launched more than 100 products, netting 18 billion in sales and has held executive positions at everywhere from fortune 500 companies like apple and autodesk to startups in the early days of the web logitech hp yahoo vmware and many others have turned to her guidance and nilifer has been featured in the wall street journal written innovation columns for business week and forbes and you've probably seen her byline and ideas in publications like the harvard business review wired and oprah and is a main stage ted speaker and in this episode we cover how to understand the things that mean the most to you. Also, the two types of identities that each of us have, why each one of us has ideas worth sharing and how to spread our message, even if we don't feel like we have influence or an audience. Also, how to create safe places for teams to share their ideas and the balance between being too loud and being heard. I'm pumped about this one. It's all about, again, using your uniqueness to make an impact and make a difference in the world. And before we dive in, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to our review of the week. This is from Pastor Julio, who said, I had stopped dreaming and stopped striving for greatness. This podcast ignited me to reach for greatness every day and to dream again. Great questions by Lewis, and it's a fun podcast. So thank you so much, Pastor Julio, for leaving a review over on iTunes, and now it's easier than ever to leave a review. It used to be very challenging, but you can literally go to your podcast app on your iPhone or on any device, click on the podcast app, click on the School of Greatness, and you can just click a button. When you scroll down, you see the place to review. It's very easy to leave reviews now, guys. So make sure to go to your podcast app, leave a comment, leave a review, and get an opportunity to be the fan in the review of the week. All right, let's get into this one. It's all about making the biggest impact with your uniqueness with the one, the only, Nilifer Merchant. From now until March 19th, Whole Foods Market is running their sales event, Taste the Mediterranean. It's a store-wide, flavor-packed journey of regionally-inspired selections. Save on Mediterranean-inspired flavors like Parmigiano, Regano, Charcuterie, and Ground Lamb. Find sales on animal welfare-certified meat. Save on seafood like Whole Bronzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles and whole wheat pita pockets. Wines from the sun-soaked vineyard of Spain, Greece, and Italy start at just $8.99. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back, and there are no fees, period. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. So many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes, it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a 
busy day and we just stocked our office fridge with International Delight Cold Foam Creamer and it never misses. The team's favorite flavor so far is the Caramel Macchiato. You just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee and voila, you've got an incredible cold foam coffee, no frothing, fancy machines, or mess required. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom. The best part, it works on both hot and iced coffee. It comes in three foaming, delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. Welcome back everyone to the School of Greatest podcast. We have Nilifer Merchant in the house. So good to see you. High fives. Uh, I'm excited you're here. We've been connecting before this. I didn't know who you were before. Um, I can't remember if you reached out to us or your publicist or someone at the... Someone found us and connected yes. us, right? Yeah. Yes. But I love this concept uh, and I'm interested to learn more about it. It's all about how to make your wild ideas mighty enough to dent the world. And for me at the School of Greatness, that's what it's all about. How can we make an impact in the world in some way. So the book is called The Power of Onlyness. And uh, make sure you guys go pick it up right now. What is this all about? What is the power of onlyness? And how can we dent the world with our ideas? So onlyness was this term I coined back in 2011, 2012. Now remember, I'm a business wonky person, right? And I was trying to capture how innovation was changing from organizations to ideas. And if it's ideas, ideas can come from anyone, mm -hmm. quite possibly everyone. And I was noticing that could open up an aperture. And how could each of us contribute? And ideas that had happened in the past really got sorted out based on who already had power. Yeah. Right. So we expect sometimes it came from the top. Right. Or it came looking in a certain form factor. Right. If you went to a certain school or worked at a certain brand mm -hmm. and so on. And I was thinking, what if it could actually mean that all of us could actually contribute based on that spot in the world? Only you stand and connected in a distributed world, be able to scale that idea. So only NIS is a function of that history of innovation. And then now I just spent the last four years finding the stories of people doing it not because they were powerful, in fact, just the opposite, and making a difference in the world at uh, really unusual across you know different industries and stuff. What are a couple of examples some people might be familiar with or that you really enjoy talking about? So uh, I'll tell you a couple of stories. So one was a story of Kimberly Bryant. Uh, Kimberly had graduated from Vanderbilt University as an engineer. She shows up at her second major job, which is in DuPont. She's so ridiculously excited about being an engineer. She's like arrived and she's finally gonna get built to build stuff. And uh, her boss introduces her to her colleagues. With Kimberly Bryant, we got a twofer. And what he was pointing out was that Kimberly was a black woman mm. in tech. He was pointing out her otherness, not her onlyness. Mm. And 15 years goes by and Kimberly's daughter Kai is at Stanford coding camp. And really good gamer, loves it, and gets treated much the same. Just basically gets told, you know, you must be a novice based on, I don't know, something, right, that the guy presumed. And, uh, and Kim sits there and ponders that and thinks, why is this not changing? And so she gathers around Kai and a bunch of her girlfriends and builds some curriculum literally on the back of a piece of paper, borrows some old computers and stuff, and starts thinking, I'll just, I'll just help these girls to code. Mm -hmm. And they'll go together and they'll help each other. And... Uh, Here's what happens. Other moms come and say, can I borrow that curriculum? Can I start it in the city? Can I bring more friends? And it starts to grow and grow and grow mm -hmm. from community. And so here's onlyness in action, right? It's this person who, if she had stayed intact and done the thing that, you know, she would never have changed anything. But right. because she saw something that only she saw and she pulled on that thread, it helped her to find the community of people who cared about the same thing. And today, Kimberly Bryant and the program Black Girls Code has since trained 10,000 girls to code. Wow. Right? So there's a power of onlyness showing up in the world, really That's changing cool. an industry, changing certainly um, the effect for a certain group of people. And then based on this thing that she had thought was, how could you possibly change it, right? So thinking at first, it's not possible, but by acting on it, kind of creating that mm, change in the world. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Franklin Leonard is a young man. And I love the story because I'm, you know, we're sitting here in uh, LA. Franklin Leonard started an organization called The Blacklist. I don't know. Do you know him already? Why do I know that, that name? 
yeah. blacklist. I want to introduce you then, yeah. uh, because he'd be a great person to talk to. Franklin, wait, the blacklist is the uh, the, TV, the the movie script scripts. thing. Yes, yes. No, I know this because I'm working with someone who is like won the blacklist or is on the blacklist or something. So I'll have to so tell I've you the story about, about this. Yeah. Like, what is this blacklist? So now I'm going to tell you all about yeah, it. So, yeah. so Franklin is really junior person in Hollywood, like. Peon would be the right word at this right, point right. in his career. He's not shown, making a mark at all. Not at all, right? And he's and in Hollywood terms, just you know, there's a big echelon, as you know, from this industry. Mm-hmm. So he ends up uh, one night saying, "Gosh, I keep finding the scripts that are so boring. Like they're not the stories of humanity. They're all the stories that we've heard before." Mm-hmm. And he sends a note out to eighty some people, and uh, and all the people he's met in his first year in Hollywood, and says, uh, "Hey." I'll help you. I'm an ex-McKinsey guy. Send me scripts you've seen in the last year that haven't been put into production that you loved, and I'll roll it all back up to you as, as sort of the you know give get. And people do this thing, uh, send it back to this alias address because so they don't know who it is that's asking him this mm-hmm. question. Franklin stack ranks the top five, prints those scripts off, goes on vacation, comes back two weeks later, and again he's just solving the problem he had. Right? Let me help find better scripts for my job, and this thing that he had started had been forwarded to him hundreds of times mm. because nobody knew it was him that had started it. Wow. And that got a bunch of scripts that were on the dustbin pulled out, scripts that were super interesting. And here's what the shift was. Hollywood always looks for how do we make money on those scripts? And what Franklin had done is asked a new question. And the power of community really made that question more relevant, which is what do we love? Mm-hmm. What do we love not because someone's telling us to love it, but because we're do, you know truly drawn to it. And then it turns out that that script has now surfaced all these beautiful new narratives mm. from people outside of Hollywood who weren't represented here, scripts that represented this range of humanity. And it wouldn't have happened if Franklin hadn't said, I want to see something different yeah. than what's being presented and actually kind of reshaped an entire industry yeah. by that action. And so onlyness, you know, how do you have an idea mighty enough to dent the world? It's what's even just a dent. It doesn't have to look completely gigantic. It I think sometimes change the whole world. It can just be like a little dent in an industry. What's the thing you see and how do you claim it and pull that idea into the future? Cause that's how all new ideas get to, you know, change the world. Right. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think the mythology that we're sold is that we have to find a big idea. Yeah. And most ideas actually start really small by noticing that thing that perhaps everyone else doesn't find consequential, but you can. Right. Wow. Fascinating. How do we cultivate this in our lives? Is there a process for mm. creating this, for making this happen? Well, the big thing is, so the first step, right, is how do you claim meaning? What is it that you find meaningful and how do you actually claim that? Most of us don't think that way. We don't we don't sort the world that way. Here's what we mostly mm. sort by, right? Is how do I make money? Yeah. Right? Can I have can I make work? Can I do a job at it? And I wonder if that's a new orientation that we're all seeking, which is in first sort of saying, what job do I have? Which is what passion do I have that can also lead to, you know, that I can orient and work becomes a part of who I am, not just this thing that I do. One of the pieces of research I found in the in the research of onlyness was that 61% of us give up our ideas in order to belong to a group. So we're part of some community, maybe it's a job that we're in, mm-hmm. and the rest of the people don't look and feel like us. And so uh, we think, yeah, I kind of have this idea, but I look around at this room of people and it doesn't look like they want that idea. And so I'll just, that's too big of a risk. Be quiet and won't share it. Yeah. And that's because if we have to pick in the hierarchy of stuff we're kind of triaging in our mind between our ideas, which is like a pretty high level of self-expression, and belonging to a group, belonging is a more fundamental need. You remember Maslow's hierarchy of Mm -hmm. needs, right? There's that base layer, which is like food and shelter stuff. And the middle layer is belonging before we can get to ideas. Mm. So if we're forced to pick, we have to pick belonging. But this is what's actually allowing the power of onlyness today is now we can find the other people who care about the same things as us, right? We Whether can create it's, the belonging through the idea. Exactly. Exactly. Like coming, saying the idea, then it's like, oh, you're attracting a few people to create the community. It's a new organizing principle. Mm. Right? Think about how we've mostly organized. We've thought about what organization do you belong to? 20 yeah. years ago, 30 years ago, that was the only set of choices we had. And now the organizing principle is ideas. And what is that magnet of an idea that you care about, mm-hmm. Lewis? 
that I might also care about. And then together we go run that idea down the field. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now there's lots of communities you can be a part of. What's the gym you're a part of? What's the, I don't know, dance classes you do. There's like all these micro communities that you can be a part of with these little passions, right? Right. Little passions. And it could be, you know, a lot of us have wanted to affect change, uh, let's say on gender issues, which is a passion of mine. Uh, and of course you saw the women's March really mobilize a lot of people saying, yeah, you know, I really want to be, uh, counted in a way. And somebody asked me recently, what advice would I give to the women's March people? And I said, well, I certainly, certainly wouldn't start with the notion of women because that is a demographic of identity that is not as nuanced as we need it to be to talk about that organizing principle of ideas. Uh, Andrew Solomon, the New Yorker writer, actually gave some beautiful language around this for me. He said, there are two different types of identities. The one that we normally think of, he labeled vertical identity. So the things we're born into, he kind of, mm -hmm. the, so that defines usually our socioeconomic status, uh, how tall we are, <laughs> yeah. our gender, our color, right? Like a whole bunch yeah. of stuff is determined by vertical identity. Language, it turns mm -hmm. out. Um, but horizontal identity is a way of conceiving of ourselves in terms of what matters to us. Hmm. And it's that uniting factor. Like our values? or Our values, mm -hmm. our purpose, our meaning. And that can be a different way of thinking about, well, what is it I care about? That, by the way, you might care about too. Right. And then we can rally together in a way, and that's what connects us. And so I think we have to step away from identities that are sort of old architectures mm -hmm. and think about this horizontal identity as a way yeah. of reformulating values. Things. You know, it's, it's funny because, not to really go off topic here, but uh, the, the topics of gender, you know, as I was writing a book about masculinity mm -hmm. and my personal experience as a man, I realized that, like, wow, all human beings wear masks. It's not just a man thing, you know. Not that the challenge is about men, but as I was writing this, my a family member of mine opened up about being gender nonconforming, mm. who was born uh, a female, and now they consider themselves gender nonconforming. And so I would realize, like, well, this is just more of a human thing. It's just about humanity and about how can we all lift each other up and right. feel equal no matter what gender or non-gender we feel we are, no matter what identity we feel like we are, but how can we all be equal in that, seen. in that place. Yeah, right. seen. seen. Acknowledged, and, and, seen. Yeah, yeah, valued for yeah. who we individually are. So, uh, in fact, one of the first stories I wrote in the book, uh, I didn't mean to write about myself in the book in the sense that I really thought when I started the project, I was going to share the stories of other people mm -hmm. and make the focus there. And then at some point, a colleague of mine who used to run a CNN channel, I sent her some stuff to look at because she's really an expert on identity. And I'd said, you know, could you take a look and see what you think if I'm, if I'm nailing this identity question? And she wrote back, she goes, I feel like I know the color of their underwear. Because it was at this point like six stories she had just read. I know everything about mm. their underwear. And she goes, but I know nothing about yours. So what is it that's letting me know that you are walking this path with me? I thought, oh gosh, that's that's pretty vulnerable. I'm not really sure I want to. <laughs> right. I'm not sure I want to do it. But the st opening story I shared was that I was supposed to get an arranged marriage when I was 18 years old. Wow. So raised in a very traditional Islamic household, born in India, raised in California, sort of one foot in both camps, right? Mm -hmm. Raised clearly with a Western culture around me, but from a very traditional household, and understood that my role from the time I was basically born was to marry well. And I kind of understood my job to be that, so I didn't really question it. I mostly <laughs> was then trying to also like tack on an asterisk because what I really also wanted was an education. And at one point in high school, in fact, I had applied to college, gotten into UC Berkeley, and then signed the deferment form because I knew I couldn't just go without also doing this thing I needed to do, you know, this little mm. checkbox in my life of I'm going to get an arranged marriage. So I thought, oh, this will be fine. I'll buy myself a year, and then the arranged marriage happened, and then I'll go to college. And I had this whole plan in my head, which no one else knew. And uh, I'm going to community college and kind of biding time while this other mm -hmm. stuff is being arranged. And one day I come home and all the aunties have like filled the house with food and they're celebrating because like everything's arranged. And I go to my uncle who had been negotiating and I said, hey, so. Negotiating the marriage. Okay. The marriage, wow. yeah. Interesting. And said, uh, so did you ask him about, you know, education? Because he knew uh, that I wanted it. And he goes, oh, no, no, your mother would not allow me to ask this question because she really wanted to focus on what was the core thing he, she wanted out of the deal was a house for her. And so couldn't ask. A house for your mom. Yeah, a house for you know, dowry. That was part of mm -hmm. the, that the, was the negotiation. Wow. Yeah, range marriage. Not about what you want, but right. what they want. Right, because what was, what was I being seen as, right? Well, I was being seen as the role of a young girl Muslim in this family 
Was I being seen as Nilifer with any of her passions and interests, visions and hopes? No, right? And so here, the, the deal goes on. I end up doing this theatrical move of putting uh, you know, five books in one outfit in a box and saying, I'm the product, and so you can't do the deal without me. And, I'm, and I walk out the door thinking, I'm going to be gone for an hour or two hours before she realizes she needs to, you know, like buy a clue. Mm, 15 years go by, by the way, before we really talked again. And uh, Your mom and you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But so it's through this lens then, right, that huh. I show up at Apple Computer and at one point get asked to go to a meeting and everyone's supposed to generate ideas at this meeting. And I think that that must include me. And so I come to the meeting already with notes and ideas and stuff. And it, it takes me like maybe five minutes to figure out, no, 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 what they meant is the MBA people in this room are the people who are supposed to have ideas. You, as an admin, not supposed to have ideas. Mm. And then you go to another room and you realize, oh, in this room, the only people who are supposed to have ideas are the guys with the CEO title. Got it. Okay, in this room, right? right. And I and I noticed throughout my career what's actually it was happened. That Apple. Yeah, it's an Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it, interesting. You'd think they'd be more innovative and want ideas from everyone. You know, every culture does this, right? The the sixty one percent fact is that most of us give up our ideas, not because we necessarily want to, but because of the culture we belong to. So this is a very large problem. Mm -hmm. And so here I am noticing at all these different points in my career that at any given point, people are too often seen through the lens of an ism, right? Could be gender, could be age, right? Really young people. How many of us have been young in our career and we had all these ideas and people were like, ah, oh, you're too young to know. Yeah, yeah, right? of course. The isn't, right? So young and, or, or even old. Now I, I'm, I'm noticing so much in tech, people are like, oh, if you're over 40, you don't really have an idea anymore. I'm like, right. actually, you're probably just hitting your prime, <laughs> right. right? But but um, because we have a bunch of 29-year-olds running around in tech. Uh, so it's a fascinating thing how we screen out and onlyness says no, actually no. Each and every single one of us has the ability to add value to the world. And now that we can do it in distributed networks, we can actually bypass cultural systems that have filtered us out. Mm. It's a real big opportunity. Mm. Why do you think people, do you think people stop sharing their ideas because they've been turned down a couple of times and said, no, that's not a good idea or no, we're not going to use it. So they feel like, oh, I can't keep sharing. You think that's part of it too? Some of it is definitely what, what you're talking about is the grit question, yeah. right? Um, are you showing up with enough confidence? Are you showing up with enough grit? And and certainly, I think that's a that's a piece. And credibility or backing or research right. or whatever it but is. Yeah, power is really what's going on, right? Uh-huh. So so if it, for some of us, that is the question: Are we asserting ourselves enough? I've recently joined the world of home ownership. And one thing I've learned is that there's so much more freedom with what I can do with my home, but also so many more decisions to make. Figuring out where to start on big projects like a complete room makeover can be overwhelming. But with Crate and Barrel's free interior design service, a design pro can provide design and styling help for projects big or small. Whether you're redesigning your living room, choosing a new dining room table and chairs, or even just styling a bookshelf. Work one-on-one with a design pro who will work Work with existing furnishings and help you choose new ones. Get 2D layouts and even 3D renderings so you can actually see your space to help you decide. Did I mention it's free? Yes. Having fun exploring the possibilities of what you can redesign or have the design desk help. Go to CrateAndBarrel.com or your local store to make an appointment with the Crate and Barrel Design Desk. Isn't it obnoxious when companies have those sneaky gotchas? hiding deep in the fine print or bills that seem to go up for no dang reason? Like when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying even more than you would have elsewhere? At Metro by T-Mobile, there's nada yada yada. That means no contracts, no price hikes, no surprises. They don't even want me to speed through the legal, so here it is. When they say no price hikes when you join, they mean your price will never increase for talk, text, and smartphone data plans. Their only exclusions are for limited-time promos, per-use charges, and third-party services. I guess that really is nada yada yada. At Metro by T-Mobile. Nada yada yada. 
When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But then there's another question, which is deeper, which is, am I allowed to have an idea here? So power turns out to be the gating factor and power either liberates or limits ideas. So a lot of the research that's been done for the last 20, 30 years says, oh, you know, women are uh, affected by certain things. I'll just use them as a group. Yeah. And uh, the reason they're not heard is because it's a gender issue. And it turns out every gender issue is actually a power issue. So if you're, so that's where the young and gender or person of color or whatever ism that you want to kind of go through are all facing the same problem, which is, are you allowed at this table? Do you have enough power and status? Or will we look first at, the group that you belong to and say, mm-hmm. hmm, you're not well-educated or you're not well-credentialed. You haven't really done that yet, right? Versus what I think a whole bunch of us just want to be seen is, listen, I have these passions and purposes. I have proved it out in these different ways and I would like to serve in this way. Yeah. And it's a different organizing mechanism. And I think how we're actually going to do the future of work is going to be this. How could we actually signal based on our own interests? Here's what I'm interested in. Here's things I've already done. Um, it's more like what 99U has enabled, right, with the portfolio model uh-huh. of artists being able to show, here's what I actually make. Who would like to buy that? Right, right. Right? Yeah. So has crowdfunding been a part of this whole movement as well? Absolutely. Where it's like, okay, I've got an idea, and if I can package it and position it and attract the right people who might feel the same way, then we can raise money for something and launch it, right? Right. So financial pieces used to be, could a bank choose you? Mm -hmm. And now could your community choose you? Yeah. And however eccentric that idea is, if a community already exists for that idea, of course you can get it done. So it's less about brand now and more about, is the idea a mobilizing force? And can you find that community of people for whom this serves a real mm-hmm. need? And it's it's an it's the thing that's unlocking all of our potential. Mm. Yeah. How do we come up with good ideas? Hmm. I've never met anyone who doesn't come up with good ideas. Have you? Most These people of us have good have. ideas, but they don't know how to deliver the message the right way or package it. Right. Sometimes we don't or execute it. Well, we we don't necessarily know. So here's the thing: all ideas are not shaped in isolation. Ideas are shaped by networks. So power and ideas are shaped by who you know. So if you're in a group full of people where you can go, can I try a crazy idea out? Can I like mm. do a trial balloon? You'll notice, and I'm sure from your own stories, right? You'll be like, hmm, thinking about this. And somebody you'll be talking to will be like, well, what about this? Mm-hmm. Have you thought about this? Or, you know, in this marketplace of ideas, that piece sort of fits here. Have you thought about talking to so-and-so, right? It'll be your colleagues you're already in conversation with who will shape and inform and guide how good your idea becomes. Mm -hmm. So if we're in a context, though, where we're kind of told we're not allowed to have ideas, maybe just because of who you are by the status of the person, first of all, you're not going to float that idea. Right. Right, because you have no safe place. And this is probably the one lesson that all of us as leaders can take away, is are we creating the right safe places for our teams to be able to say, I have a wild idea, Mm. and we can actually explore it long enough to learn from it, to decide if we even want to act on it. And if we're creating environments where everyone's going to be judged first, that's not going to be a highly creative place. Yeah. 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 What's the most effective way to enroll someone in your idea? Oh, that's a really good question, right? So um, I'm curious. So you just went through, and I know you're working on a really interesting new book. Tell me, who was the first person you turned to that you got enrolled? In the book? Yeah. Um, well, in the book process, right? Because you were actually- agent. Yeah. And then the publisher. Okay. But there were usually somebody else, right? Like somebody else that you were actually talking to even closer than that before. I, mean, you I think it was my team. And my right. team I was talking to. And I was like, is this a good idea? Is this, you know. Right. And I was more kind of like convincing them that, of the idea. Thank and you. Then, and then seeing if it was going to stick. Right. You're also testing out the messages. Yeah. Right. Okay. And they're so, like, eh, no. 
Okay. If everyone says no, then I'm like, eh, well, maybe I reconsider. What is this? Right. So, so you just shown me, and so this is why I just did it because it's really, sure. you know, it's like in the simplicity of every answer is actually the truth, right? So most of us, if we're in a context where other people uh, won't get it, we need to go find those people with whom we could go. Hmm. I want to test out an idea. So we can now signal and seek the community we need. That's a, that's a huge opportunity in the last 20 years that we have, right? So if I care about, in fact, Alex Hillman, let me tell this story. So Alex Hillman was in uh, Philadelphia feeling super, super lonely, guy basically eating takeout over his computer as he tells me the story, and uh, feels like as a web developer, he couldn't find anyone else who is this combination of geeky, young, mm. maker type person. He felt like Philadelphia was full of sort of old tech, not new tech. And so he's going home every night eating takeout instead of actually being with colleagues and thinking, I should go get a job somewhere else, right? In the city, like he was thinking Silicon Valley. And uh, at one point, though, the job falls through, the job opportunity falls through, and he comes back and he thinks, maybe they're here and I'm just not looking hard enough. So he changes himself first. He changes from wearing the suits that he used to wear to work to wearing, uh, you know, ironic T-shirts and flannel mm. sweatshirts. And he cuffs up his <laughs> sleeves and he shows his tats, which he had never done before. And he shows up to every event, signaling more of who he was so he could seek out the community he was looking for. And one by one, sort of finding someone that kind of had that same interest as him, saying, hey, would you like to get together for beer? Hey, would you like to code together in a coffee shop? And slowly but surely building up a little group. They show up almost like locusts on coffee shops after a while, like five people, 10 people at a uh -huh. time, and really enjoyed working together. Like, oh my God, our people, we found our people. And they're just feeling energized. At one point he goes, should we, should we get our own space? Mm. Like, you know? And uh, this thing that is now called Indie Hall, one of the first co-working co spaces in America. Really? Yeah. So and before one of, we work, this is... Exactly. And mm. born organically of him seeking out people who were like him. He was no longer lonely. And then I interviewed some of the some of the other people who joined in that community and said, yeah, it turns out a lot of us were looking for this thing. But it took Alex embodying what it was he was looking for, making it safe enough for all of us to kind of emerge, right? Community doesn't emerge until you first say, this is who I am. You mm. reveal, this is who I am. So the rest of the community can also reveal themselves, right? It's like the coming out of his shadows. Yeah. And they build something. And I call the deputy mayor guy who had been in Philadelphia. And I go, well, how did, how did Indy Hall affect anything else in the city? And he goes, well, actually, here's the really funny part. We wanted to serve entrepreneurs more. Philadelphia wanted to be that kind of city, but we didn't know where they were. Right. <laughs> and, you know, how would we possibly find them, right? Mm -hmm. And so here we are now. Indy Hall, is there's now five co-working spaces in Philadelphia. And he says, now we know how to find them. We know how to serve them. We know how, what it is they need. We know how to advocate for their interests. And so this little ripple effect of first signaling and seeking the people who are like you, in, in this case, you know, using obviously tech tools of mm -hmm. like LinkedIn and meetups and stuff, yeah, yeah. but also using the in real life moment of like, I am here. Yeah. Is anyone else here? Here's my tattoos. Here's my, yeah. Yeah. The way I dress is, yeah. Right. And so, so the thing is you have a team, Lewis, where you get to work with people who already get you. When we don't already have that, we can go build it. Mm. And we can go find the other people with whom we can explore the things that we care about. Yeah. That's the opportunity. Mm. What's the difference maker in getting people to execute on your ideas with you? Trust. So no one actually pulls a ball down the field unless uh, they believe they can count on you to also be there to go throw that ball down the field. So back when I was, uh, you know, my, my kid was probably like four or five, I want to say, I used to go watch these soccer games, you know, just on Saturday mornings and stuff. Oh, my God, it was so painful because you know what the kids did? They just, you know, like hurtled around the ball, right, five-year-olds. And the ball could go anywhere. It didn't matter. Cause, and all the kids would just be surrounding the ball, whether or not they, they couldn't make a goal because they didn't understand how to play position. They didn't know, oh, if you stand over there and I kick the ball to you, then I can trust that you're going to go do this next thing. And that's sort of how we are as adults then, which is, can I trust you that if I kick the ball to you, you will do what it is I expect you to do with that ball? Because I really care about that ball. I really care about that goal. But if I don't think you're going to be on my team, you're not wearing the jersey I expect you to wear, right? Then I'm not going to throw the ball to you and I'm not going to move the ball down the field. And so trust is that thing that says, can you do it? Will you do it? And will you choose the shared goals of what I want to see done too versus your own maybe perhaps selfish goals? And that's where the this idea, right, the ball, the idea becomes the thing that we're all playing with 
on the field. Mm. Why did you want to spend so much time on this, four years working on this? Why is it so important for you? Uh, I, I'm fascinated with the idea that so many of us are screened out. In fact, uh, when I was writing the book, towards the very end, I sent it to one of the top management thinkers in the world, and really an advisor and somebody I consider to be a friend. And he wrote me six pages of notes of like critique of what I, he felt I got wrong and so on. And then at the very end, he said, I really find this idea audacious, like too audacious. And the line specifically that he was critiquing was this line where I said, I believe that all 7.5 billion of us have the ability to create value in the world. The fact that society doesn't know how to tap all that capacity is our problem, but also our opportunity. And he was really like, ugh, ugh, that's a little, that's a little too wild, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and as I read the sentence, I remember, <laughs> I, you know, through his, his lens, right, over my shoulder, essentially, I just remember going, maybe it is too wild. Maybe that is kind of makes me sound a little too audacious, too crazy. Mm-hmm. And I remember cutting it out. And... And then, like, I don't know, I was doing on it and stewing on it, and then somewhere, like, 4 o'clock in the morning or something, we know, and, I, and you probably know this process of having written books, you kind of come back to manuscripts in different phases of sleeplessness, right, of your thinking about something. And I wrote back the line in, mm-hmm. and I remember feeling like I was being really sneaky, like maybe he <laughs> wouldn't notice or sure, something, sure. right? And But what I was actually doing, right, was asserting, actually, no, I do believe that all of us have the ability to contribute and the fact that we don't know how to tap everyone's capacity, that we're always looking for who has the right credentials or who has the right education or who mm-hmm. has the right brand experience or who looks the darn way we expect them to look, instead of who is sometimes right in front of us, invisible to us because we're expecting a different packaging. I think that's the hugest opportunity there is. Mm. And I think it's the, uh, according to the sizing I did, it's at least a trillion dollar opportunity in the U.S., 4.6 trillion globally. It's an economic opportunity, but it's also a value opportunity. How do we value ourselves and create more value in the world based on that spot in the world only Mm. you stand? Mm. What do you think is the biggest challenge you've had to overcome? I think for every, every moment where I'm asserting that every person can add value, you know, here I am even with this idea and this book and stuff. uh, I have so many people say, who are you to believe that? I had a person tell me a couple years back, in fact, uh, I had turned to this guy who was really good at naming books, like unbelievably good. <laughs> and I'd said, because this was now for my second book, and I said, you know, I'm clearly not good because my first book was labeled terribly. And, uh, and I said, could you help me? And he said, sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to help you. In fact, I've read some of your ideas. I'm happy to help. And we sat down, and this is the very first thing he said. He said, as a brown woman, the chances of you being seen in the world are next to nothing. <laughs> For your ideas to be seen, they'd have to be edgier. But if you were edgier, you'd never get seen. And so, and then he had done like this long pause. And of course, a part of me in my head is in there thinking, please, 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 please turn the direction of this conversation. And he goes, no, no, for your ideas, no, they'll never be seen in the world. And, hmm. um, and so it's interesting because, it, it, you know, people will uh, uh, look at me and go, well, of course, you just kind of dismiss that, right? I go, no, actually, I didn't. For two, three months, I sat around and had fully embraced what is perfectly well his truth. It could be his truth, right? Mm-hmm. But I had accepted it as a truth and adopted that lens as if somehow that limiting factor could limit the ideas I could create. And took, you know, somebody actually kind of coming by and smacking me upside the head and saying, um, did you realize that was a bullshit line? And yeah. uh, and for me going, oh, yeah, okay, thank you for slapping me upside my head so I can get that idea out of my head and put my own ideas back in. Mm-hmm. But to be able to assert one's worth, one's own narrative of wild ideas, when you get so much feedback for people who are not powerful, mm. right, for you, to, for you to be able to keep asserting that, some people kind of go, gosh, that doesn't seem like such a weird thing. Like, of course you're going to assert your idea is powerful. Yeah. But for a bunch of us, we're told, we're actually told to our faces by people who look like they're actually advocating for our interests that no, no, you're not allowed. Mm-hmm. And then to overcome that over and over mm-hmm. again without becoming bitter or becoming, you know, whatever. Oof, that's it's tough. challenging. Hmm. What do you think is the biggest thing that holds you back from making a bigger dent? Not asking for enough help. You don't ask for enough? I always feel like there's so many people who can 
um, who can help. And I sometimes go, did I, did I remember to ask? Or do they think that I got it together? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, Nellifer, you got, you got it going on. Everything's good. I see you all over the internet, right? You're on tour. I see you everywhere. I've seen it. And I'm like, you know, it would really help if you pitched in here. And if you figured out how to carry this idea into the world, because that would matter to me. And I find myself not asking sometimes or holding back because I'm like, oh, I don't want to impose. Mm -hmm. And yet I know that person gets the idea and I would love for them to also be an advocate. So I think that's the biggest thing is I think we could all lean on our friends more mm -hmm. and ask for help where we need it because that's what's going to help us get better. Mm -hmm. Why don't you do it enough? Yeah, you don't want to impose on other people. Like what if, what if it's an imposition? What if you're asking too much? Yeah. I think I'm, I'm worried that I might be, yeah, drawing on too much, drawing mm. on the well too much. And yet every time anybody ever asks me, you know, if I'm as excited about that idea as they are, and somebody asks me to help, I'm going to be like, of course, of course mm. I want to help, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, I often just think, gosh, am I applying the same standard I would want applied to me? Yeah. Yeah. What do you say to people who say to themselves, you know, not me or my idea is not good enough or... I'm not ready for this idea to be out there. What do you What do you say to people that like that? All of us who play small, sometimes we play small because we've been taught to play small. Uh, you know, society sent us a, a lot of messages. And I just go, you, you get to decide whether or not you internalize mm -hmm. that message, right? So I, I'm fascinated by uh, linguistics and uh, like the word responsibility. And I you separate yeah. out the two pieces, response and then ability. And so... If someone's told you that message, okay, what is your response to that message? Is it to accept it? Or like I did at that guy, right? The, as a brown woman, you're never going to be seen. To, is it to accept it or to go, hmm, I choose a different path? Yeah. And to act in spite of knowing anything better or different, um, to act on my own ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the great act, regardless of who you are. That's the common narrative of who gets to be successful. It's not about the idea, which is essentially like the little light bulb over your head. Innovation happens when you take that seemingly wild idea and you carry it across a finish line. So it joins this marketplace. Yeah. Changes yeah. the reality of that marketplace. Right. Yeah. What about, uh, where's the line between being too loud and being heard? Oof. So that you can finish, you know, bring across a finish line. What is that line? So, so I think one of the things is who gets defined too loud? Right. I, I, one of the things I, I do sometimes in audiences when I'm working with a large group of people, I go, how many of you have been told you're too much or too weird or too wild? And I'll keep using different adjectives and ask people to raise their hands. And then usually there's be, you know, like 10%, 20% of the room, which still has their hands down. And I'm like, no, 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 you're lying to yourself. <laughs> like all of us have been told that. And the question is, who's defining too much, too loud? So is it that people are saying to you, I don't want to hear you because your voice is too shrill or whatever. And are they just people who are trying to screen you out? Then you get to decide, mm, I get to dismiss that. Mm -hmm. I get to go find the setting where my ideas might be heard. And then in other cases, like corporate settings and stuff, one of the things I've noticed is sometimes people are holding back because they're saying, oh, they don't want to hear from me. So I used to do a ton of innovation turnaround kind of stuff. And I'd go in with teams who had been working together for years. And I'd be like, okay, tell me all the ideas you've had. And they would tell me privately. And then I'd go, well, have you told you know, in a large room, like has everyone mm -hmm. surfaced these ideas? And like, oh no, nobody wants to hear those ideas. And I go, okay, so what you're doing is causing the failure. Can I tell you that, right? You're causing the failure because you're basically saying no one wants me to say it. When by the way, you haven't even given them a chance mm -hmm. to turn you down. Right, right. I'm like, at least give them a shot. I said, so if you haven't made the business case and you haven't made the argument well enough and you haven't done your work, then you're being a slacker. So show up and do that work and I will help create the setting where you can actually show it up. And then nine times out of 10, the argument actually gets a yes, right? So all I say mm. is get it to a point where someone can reject it very cleanly. And if they choose then not to move forward because for whatever reason they don't want that breakthrough idea, that's fine and hear them out. But if you haven't done the work because for some reason you think they don't want to hear it, that's on you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, right? sure. Because we all got to do the work in spite of knowing whether or not it's going to work out because mm. none of us know that part. And so we can't limit ourselves by that. Right. What would you say is the moment that shaped your life the most? I'm not sure if it's a moment. Moment or experience. I think it's any time people have believed in me. And, and I look at the stories of people uh, in the stories of loneliness, right? All the 300 stories. It's when someone believed in them enough, gave them enough room uh, to explore and to grow. 
and so all those moments, in, in fact, like even in writing the book of Alinas, uh, it would be like, I'm thinking it's this. And somebody would say, well, uh, they would give me enough space for me to explore it, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know what it is I'm really researching or what it is I really believe. But if I can pull on the edges of it, if someone can ask me to have questions, if I can go in front of an audience and people can give me the room to get it wrong first mm-hmm. so I can get it right later, those are the settings and the places where I have blossomed. And anytime anyone's given me room to show up fully as myself, I think those are the places where mm-hmm. I've thrived. Yeah, who's like your greatest, most of us. Yeah, who's your greatest teacher then? Life. Is there a person in your life that's taught you the most? Whether them, something they said, something they didn't say, them being there for you, them not being there for you? You know, my son is uh, now 14 years old and uh, he's a, such a good kid. So smart. And uh, one of the things he often says back to me is, Mom, why are you your worst critic? Why are you your worst critic? Yeah. So he will just play back to me uh, language I'm using to describe something, right? Like, oh, I'm failing at this or whatever. Mm. And uh, and he goes, because you know that's not going to help you learn. You know that's not going <laughs> to help you ask for help. You know, you know, and he will say back to me things that, like I've said. And uh, he goes, why are you your worst critic? And so I think the people who are so close who get that opportunity to be your mirror and to help shine back to you what you believe to be true. Because you do know, you know, you do know what you need. Um, but to shine that back to you. Like, let me hold this space for you yeah. so you can yeah. be fully who you are, right? And uh, and I think, like, he's he's a perfect example to me. He just mm. kind of pokes me back when I do it to myself. He's like, no, mm. no, that's yeah. not. You would never let me get away with that, so no. Sure, sure. And how's your relationship with your mom now? Yeah, kind of about the same. Yeah. As that that day you left, essentially? Wow. Because you know what's hard, right, is for her, I failed her because I didn't live according to a cast, a group, uh, mm. an expectation, and uh, and so I did fail her. And, and I think it took me a really long time to be okay with that. I did. To accept I did. it. Yeah, to go, yeah, I did. Totally. I totally failed her. Uh, and I accept In her that. mind. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about... Right. Here's the thing. But is it your, is it, are you the one supposed to be free? I mean. That's not my job on earth. Yeah. So I accept a different meaning for my job on earth Mm -hmm. than the one she wanted for me. Because I think we all get a chance to choose that destiny. I believe that, right? That you get to choose what is the purpose that you have in your life. And if someone else gets to define that for you and you are shaped and constrained only by what they want for Mm. you, that's not your life. That's not freedom. And so I get to choose that. And I also accept that she sees that as a failing on my part. I, I see that. And I accept mm-hmm. that. You can claim victory in sports on the job site, even on your taxes by switching to H&R Block. Block offers many ways to file to fit your schedule. A 100% accurate return on your max refund or your money back. Plus, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. Switch today and feel like a tax champion. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. Disclaimer, all tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at at hrblock.com slash guarantees. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, Just don't talk at all. You know, we talk to the degree that I get to invite my grandson into her yeah, home yeah, and, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff so that we all know each other, but... It's not yeah. really a relationship. Or yeah, just right. Because like- a relationship exists with intimacy. Intimacy means you're willing to be shaped by that person. Uh, you're willing to um, be open to that person, be vulnerable to that person, right? So we don't have that. 
unfortunately. Is there a way to shift people's ideas around something? Always. Do you think there's a way to shift her ideal about your failure or success or lack of what she wanted you to be? I think the one thing about in that culture, and this is interesting, right, to grow up in different cultures. Mm -hmm. So in India, my definition of who I was was really shaped by my gender. And it was interesting to come to America and see it so shaped by my color, hmm. which I was like, wow, whoa, look, I'm suddenly brown. Like, I, you know, you, don't, you come to America and you realize your color, uh, and which, which is so fascinating to watch. I've heard people um, experience that. And then I go to France and I live there for two years and I'm, I'm colorless. Like no one looks at me through the lens of my color, which I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that was an identity question you could put down. There, um, I noticed people notice me more by socioeconomic class. Did I have good Education manners? And manners, yeah. manners and, and politeness Respect, and civility, yeah. exactly. And huh. so it was so interesting to me that identity is such a fluid thing and that you get to carve out in your life what is that identity of both vertical, which is what you were born mm -hmm. into, and horizontal, which is what you care about. Where do you get to live out your identity? And so I recognize that according to the vertical identity of what my mother wanted for me is not what I want for me. And the fact that she can't be happy with it, I'm totally like, well, I accept that, right? Yeah. Because I think we're all put on earth to live out our own life's purpose, not for happiness, but for meaning, right? To figure out what is it I can distinctly serve the world for and with, and I got to do that. And I'm pretty sure an arranged marriage and all that just was not the highest purpose for, for me. you. Yeah. yeah. What is your purpose now? Wow. <laughs> Can I get it in a sentence? Uh, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I will, I will use my husband's words cause I think sometimes it helps to a little bit of perspective. Uh, somewhere around this process of the book, I had written a 120,000 word manuscript. Mm. It wasn't good. Uh, I could tell it wasn't good, but I couldn't tell what wasn't good. You know, I was sort of stuck and staring at it. And I asked if I could stop because I was like, clearly I do not have this in me uh, and I'm failing. And, you know, why? Why am I beating my head against the wall? You know, and at one point he said, you know, for about 20 years now, you've been the person going in and figuring out how to help every organization find that idea, regardless of who in the room had it, getting them to listen on it, figuring out how to use that to win in the marketplace. This is the thing you've always done seeing the person who was there regardless of their title and stuff. Mm. And here with this idea of onlyness, here you are trying to, you know, make it a bigger idea and actually develop it and understand it and so on. Because you can't stop. Besides, you'll be like a nightmare to live with. And you can't stop because this this is the work you're you've been called to do all your life. Mm -hmm. And uh and I kind of like sat there and went, and if I can use foul language, right? Thank you. Right, because he so busted me. I was like, oh my God, what would I possibly do if it wasn't this? Mm. So uh, the research nearly killed me because I was so excited at getting it right uh -huh. and finding the social science behind getting it right so other people might follow and be able to do it and not just talk. Sometimes you do bullshit books, right? Like um, everyone's like, oh, and you can do this and it'll be successful. And actually, no, there's no science behind that or whatever, right? So I was like really working hard to get it right and tell a good story and make it something someone could act on and so on. And I was like, the burden was really high and, and I'm so glad he pushed me to keep trying because it really was what I, what I hope is mm. my larger mission, which is helping people live out their true meaning in the world and to be seen as they distinctly are because we each get a chance then to be valued, right? Hold ourselves as valuable and create more value in the world. Yeah. Wow. What can people expect from this when they go through it? Well, the there's biggest, biggest there's takeaway from people. Yeah, well, you can read the back jacket. There's some great words. Masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Tom Peters called it a masterpiece. Stacy Lennon, who I know you know, mm -hmm. called it one of the most hopeful pieces of writing. Um, I think it gives people a roadmap for how to find their own path in the world, and uh, and a, a certain way of kind of thinking about how to be powerful themselves, but also how to respect every person as being powerful enough mm -hmm. to be able to dent the world. Mm -hmm. Respect everyone's ideas. Yeah. At least listening to them, yeah. whether or not you give it a shot, right? whether or not you execute on it or believe in it or think it's for you, at least listening. Yeah, seeing the idea, not just dismissing it based on the package it comes through. Right, right. I love it. Um, a couple questions left for you. This is called the three truths. Mm. Uh, and, I'm so excited. <laughs> and uh, imagine you've said everything you want to say in the world. Mm. You've created everything. You've achieved all your dreams. You've Live the life you wanted to have. And it's the last day for you many years from now. But for whatever reason, everything you've created, all your work, your books, your videos is erased. So no one has access to it. 
Mm. But you have a piece of paper and a pen to write down the three things you know to be true about all your experiences. Mm. And this would be the only three things that people would have left. That would be your message to the world. What would you say are your three truths? Each and every single one of us has value to add in the world. That's the first truth. Mm. It can be a small thing, but we all have something to add to the world, to serve. Um, second, it is such a gift to show up, to, to, to show our own purpose in the world, to shine that light out. And too many of us hide that light. Mm-hmm. That is the gift to bring our light to the world, our distinct light. Um, and that is really what we all need to do. Um, third, there is so much possibility and abundance that comes when each of us can contribute that which only we can. Mm. This world right now is scared. I see all the news and I see underlying it a fear that we don't have enough. We need to build a wall so that somehow our jobs will be protected or we need to do whatever. And it's all fear-based. It's as if we won't have enough and we actually can create more because we have that capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an abundance really possible here. Mm, those are great. Those are great. I want to acknowledge you for a moment for your risk that you've taken and the risk of leaving and not having approval from your mom or your family mm-hmm. to actually go shine your light because without doing that, I don't think you would have been able to give people permission by staying confined to what someone else wanted for you as opposed to doing it yourself. So I acknowledge you for that gift you, and for Liz. the mission you've been on to, to help so many people Thank share you. their ideas. Um, make sure you guys get this book. It's called The Power of Onlyness. Where can they get the book? And where Everywhere your, books are sold. And what about your site? Where can they follow you and connect online? Yeah, so I'm all over the internet, but uh, nillifermerchant.com. So N-I-L-O-F-E-R-M-E-R-C-H-A-N-T.com. Awesome. And... Um, my final question for you is, what's your definition of greatness? Uh, my definition of greatness is to live your life's purpose out in the world at all times and never walk away from yourself. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. There you have it. You are unique. You have the power to make an impact. It doesn't matter the level of influence you have you can make a difference and change in the world. Make sure to check out the full show notes at lewishouse.com slash 542 to watch the video, to check out the link for the book and all the other resources we talked about in this episode. And as always, you are a beautiful human being. Being the best is great. You're the number one. But being unique is greater because you are the only one. That's an anonymous quote that I love and I want to use more often. You have the power to make an impact. It doesn't matter if you have influence in an audience. You can be influential by making a difference in using your uniqueness. I love you guys, and you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. Hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Sometimes it takes a different approach 
to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 